Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I speak to Pavan Daliwal, chief executive of Revolving Doors Agency. They work to end the revolving door of crisis and crime. Pavan explains their belief that justice system reform cannot be achieved without the voices of those who have had direct experience of the system themselves. Hi, I'm Pavan Daliwal and I'm the Chief Executive of Revolving Doors. Can you tell me why Revolving Doors was set up and exactly what it does? Yep, so our mission is to break the cycle of crisis and crime. And uh, we work specifically with the revolving door group of people. So it's those people who have repeat contact with the criminal justice system, which is largely driven by unmet uh, health and social needs. So this could be a combination of substance misuse, domestic abuse, um, homelessness, mental ill health. The term that's used commonly around this is multiple disadvantage. Okay, and is that adults and children or men and women? Primarily we work with adults, but over the last few years we've been focusing in on young adults as well, on the okay. 18 to 25 group. Um, in terms of see, in terms of our prevention work, we are really aware that a lot of the work needs to is around prevention and needs to begin a lot earlier. So we try to work in partnership with those who are doing that work um, because our members tell us that these are really pertinent issues. So the I guess the unique thing about revolving doors um, is the is the approach that we take to our work. So we you know we work across um, policy, research, service design, systems change, um, but all of our work is underpinned by the voices of those with lived experience. So we um, we have uh, a number of forums, um, regional forums, women's forum, a new generation policing forum, and everything that we do is informed by those voices um, because we firmly believe that the best way to achieve systems systems change um, and to reform the system is to be informed by the people who have had direct contact themselves. Yeah, makes sense, doesn't it? Absolutely makes sense. (laughs) It makes you sort of wonder how it was ever done without those voices feeding in really, doesn't it? Absolutely. And what that really helps us do as well is focus in on root causes Um, We know that um, with our cohort of people, the main drivers um, for their behaviour are rooted in uh, poverty, discrimination and trauma. 
Um, and it's far more powerful when you have those voices um, who are, so for instance, it's our members themselves who give evidence to select committees, for instance, on behalf of Revolving Doors. They help co-design the, the research. They do the, they conduct the research themselves as well. Oh, wow. And so we make sure that in our approach, it's, it's very much embedded in everything that we're doing. And it's, it's interesting, actually, because I think it's probably shifted over the past five to ten years in that now people do acknowledge the value of lived experience voice, whether it's in service design, moving towards around the governance level as well. Absolutely. I've noticed with my sort of philanthropic background, I guess, more and more funders are also now saying, do you have someone with lived experience on your board? How much consultation are you doing um, with the sort of organization that I run? Um, so I'm on sort of both sides of the fence, if you like. So I've, I've definitely been hearing that more and more. And it's absolutely right. Absolutely. Um, and also, I think it changes the way that you work as well. It's around accountability. So we have, um, as well as our forums that we have, which inform the, uh, the work that we're doing, um, we have an internal board as well called the lived experience advisory panel and it's 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 so sort of ingrained in the dna of the organization um and it really sort of brings to life and reminds you why you're doing the work that you're that you're doing um and so usually every day every other day i will i will meet with one of our members i mean at the moment it's all happening virtually and that's actually been a really interesting shift as well in terms of thinking about the types of people uh, that you're able to get involved in the organisation and the work, given the fact that, so pre-COVID, there would have been physical meetings. The people that we work with are not people who served a prison sentence 20 years ago and have since, I don't know, done two PhDs and, and mm. you know, all of that kind of... Uh, the, the people that we work with are, they're extraordinary people. We normally work with about 40 to 60 people at any one time across our forums. Um, but in order to uh, be eligible to join one of our, our forums, um, your contact with the system has got to be very recent. You normally within okay. the last two years. A lot of our members are currently on probation. They're currently in treatment services. And so there's still a lot of uh, sort of chaotic elements to their lives as well. And the way that we've adapted to working during COVID, um, what it's meant is that it's much easier for them to get involved in our work as well. Yeah, um, and I bet a lot of them who don't maybe like to travel or get on a busy bus or a tube, it's like, oh, I can talk about this from the safety of my home and I don't need to go out because you might be agoraphobic. You know, things can be Absolutely, yeah, and people have got young children yeah. and there's lots of stuff going on in people's lives. But if they can actually, you know, we've, we sent all the kit out to all of our members so they can actually just join via Zoom. I mean, of course, it doesn't replace the face-to-face -face element um, and we do really hope that we can get back to some some semblance of, of of normality when it comes to sort of just just for the yeah just for the, that sort of human contact and being able to to meet each other in person um but in terms of the the output and the work that they've done over the past couple of years um has been absolutely incredible um like i said you know we've had members who um in the last year gave evidence to three different select committees some sitting in their gardens some rolling up ciggies outside their flats you know but Amazing. but really being able to sort of speak truth to power and also not being in that really intimidating environment exactly which scares you know ceos um Absolutely. scares you know people who've who in a way could be used to 
being grilled in meeting rooms and all the rest of it. Absolutely. And and they're able to talk about their life experiences if they've deemed that appropriate. But more importantly, what they're able to do is to suggest solutions um, and talk about what, what are the elements that could have made a change in their lives? How could a service have been designed or delivered that could have had a greater impact? And like I said, and these are very live issues for them because they are cur- currently in receipt of the services as well. So tell me how that sort of fed into a project like, is it new gen policing? Yeah, new generation policing. So new, new generation policing is uh, one of the projects that we've been running over the past, uh, over the past three years. And, um, that's sort of slightly different from the other work that we do in that we did decide to focus in on young adults and think about what are the uh, what are the sort of bespoke, personalised, uh, trauma-informed services that can be put in um, pre or at the point of arrest for young people, where, again, we know that the, the drivers um, for their contact are around um, uh, poverty and discrimination. And trauma, and so with that, um, we uh, convened a, a group of young people. They're called the New Generation Campaigners. Um, so we work with them to design the campaign and for them to become their own advocates around what they think should change in the system. And they they designed a campaign um, which was divert, don't arrest, um, and we worked in partnership with uh, police and crime commissioners and police forces. And the inspiration was actually taken um, from a a model that was developed in the US with the Public Defenders Association, the LEAD model. Um, And we encouraged um, police forces to design these bespoke services for young people. We're in the sort of final stages now of the evaluations. And we worked with um, seven forces across the country in order to do this, along with um, encouraging them to take a a specific approach when it came to um, uh, race discrimination, to take account of um, socioeconomic factors, so to be led by what the um, what the poverty rates were and okay. what the drivers were for, again, particularly for, for young people. So, so how does that work? Because obviously divert, don't arrest. So trying to sort of stop these young people from getting into the system and getting too bogged down. But so could you give me an example of where the police might divert them to or what that actually looks like? Yeah, so we uh, we published an evidence review um, about lots of different diversion schemes and what works and what doesn't work. Um, I guess the, the thing that I really like about the organisation in that we're not scared to say we've tried something and it didn't, it didn't work. Um, and we know that there's lots of things out there that, that aren't as effective as others. So what it's it's actually about looking at what the local need is and you'll be you won't be surprised uh to hear me say that um all roads lead back to funding and yes. funding types of <laughs> services yes and so and if there's nothing in the community where do you divert them to absolutely and police forces and police and crime commissioners who uh have all the goodwill in the world and say actually you know we absolutely recognize this we don't want to see this churn of young people we're picking up the same young people time and time again but where do we divert them to um the good thing was is at the beginning of this project um we uh we managed to secure some investment in terms of trying to uh, 
trying to design some of these services. And we also set up um, with the Police Foundation, the, um, the Knowledge Exchange Network, so a community of practice for police officers across the country um, who meet, I think, bi-monthly to share that good practice and think about what, what are they doing in their local area. Um, and also, how do, you, how do you identify those needs when, you're, when you pick young people up and when you're interacting with them? And how do you then identify which are the best services to divert them to? But time and time again, when you talk to our, um, our young people and to the campaigners and the research that we've done around this, it's, it's just a lack of services and activities in an area for young people to get involved in. Um, so this speaks to a much bigger issue um and that ties in with um thinking about how do integrated care systems work how does the leveling up agenda how is this how is this going to be addressed through that and also we have a whole new cohort of police and crime commissioners who were elected in last may and how will they be addressing these issues we're going to be doing some work over the next year looking at participatory budgeting um, of police forces as well, and thinking about, well, what are the steps that need to be taken before you get to a position where you can where you can engage in a process of participatory budgeting, thinking about what do local people think money should be spent on? Where should the, mon- where should the funds be diverted? I always think that's quite an interesting one because on the one hand, maybe people are, people in a local community, um, are best placed to obviously speak to what matters to them but do you think that then sometimes skews the issues of what maybe really do need to be tackled and I guess I'm thinking about because we all sit in our homes and it might be like oh you know there's a rural crime and the sheds are being broken into and the tractors are being tampered with and actually the big problem in that county is sexual violence but it might not touch Mr. and Mrs. Miggins because they live in a completely different way. So I guess there's a socioeconomic sort of rub in there. I think there is. And I think that this is why when approaching this type of pilot and this type of project, it's it's about making sure that it's very place-based and honing in on that local area and making sure, and this is, like I said, this is all very much being designed and thinking about actually how, what could work, what doesn't work. It's actually about presenting the reality of what's happening to local people on the ground. So you can uh, you you have the the wider uh, national media narrative um, around crime, around law and order. But if you think about the uh, if you think about the revolving door group of people, you're talking about um, a group of people who have repeat contact with the criminal justice system. If you think about the short prison sentences, almost half of people in prison are on short prison sentences um, for low-level offences, mainly related to theft, um, and uh, where the drivers are really clear when you think about poverty, you think about substance misuse. So you have to then think about, if you hone in on that at a local level, you think, well, okay, so if, for instance, in your local area, um, there are theft is a is a big issue antisocial behavior is is a big issue so you could think about extra policing in that area that's that's one way you could think about it or you could think about okay so all of these people who have got substance misuse issues um who have uh who are living in poverty 
who are dealing with childhood trauma, what are the services in place for them? Because over 60% of them end up back in the prison system within a year yeah. when they're on short sentences. Yeah. So in fact, would you not rather have make sure what, what money diverted to ensure that those services are in place so people can actually get the help that they need, thinking more with that long-term lens on as opposed to just thinking in the immediate. Yeah, but then it's interesting, isn't it? If I'm a police and crime commissioner, then I go, obviously prevention is really important because then there's less of a budgetary sort of squeeze on my police officers and they can be freed up to be doing more of the job that they need to be doing. Um, but then as a, the police and crime commissioner, I don't want to maybe put my budget into prevention because if it is a drug problem, is it not then a health budget? And I might be wrong. No, and there seems to be a bit of an issue there. Whose problem is it? And everyone wants to look after their pounds, yeah. quite rightly. And it should be spent wisely because it's taxpayers' money. So whose job is it then to deal with the drug issue? Absolutely. And I think this is where um, this is where I think there are some real opportunities. Um, because so you, we've got some uh, some some great national initiatives through things like Project Ada. We've had the um, the drugs policy, the national drug strategy that's been released. But it's actually about working out that multi-agency working and thinking about okay, how can this be treated as a public health issue, and where would the funds come from in order for that to happen? And I know it's still very much in the early stages, but there are. The, the integrated care systems, which are being introduced um, from April, I think it is. Um, but that is going to be an opportunity and we'll be piloting and we'll also be looking into this again at a local level. How are we going to ensure, where is, going to, where is the best practice where the police and crime commissioner is working with the local public health board, who's working with the chief police constable, who's working with the head of the service for, um, for drug addiction, like, how can that actually work? And we have, um, we're working on the, uh, the Changing Futures program at the moment. And Changing Futures is, um, is a program that was introduced by the government following uh, an eight year big lottery funded um, program called Fulfilling Lives. And this program is about improving the outcomes um, for adults experiencing multiple disadvantage. And the interesting thing is it's been piloted across 15 areas across the country. Um, and it's, it's about systems change. And it's about how do agencies work together to ensure good and long-term outcomes for this particular group who create the most churn in the system. And uh, our role within this program is providing the support um, on the ground to the various areas to make sure that um, lived experience uh, voice is embedded throughout the program from its implementation to supporting co-production to governance um, to decision making knowing that it's only the only thing that's going to work is taking that person-centered trauma-informed approach which thinks long term and I think that part of the the trap that the agencies fall into again some with the with the best will in the world it's thinking in short terms sort of almost political cycles yeah because so i think thinking, all our services yeah. do end up becoming political don't they because they're sort of run by government they're funded by government if government's short term and thinks in elec election sort of 
cycles, then of course the public service have to adapt to that. And one minute they're going left, one minute they're going right, one minute they exist, the next minute they don't. And then it all changes again. And as soon as we all know what the language means, it changes again. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is, um, you know, this is part of the challenge with when people have been talking about like the levelling up agenda, because you think, well, what does levelling up mean? Are we talking about going to say pre-2008 levels and then levelling up from there? Because actually, from what I can see at the moment, it's not even touching the sides. Yeah, in terms what of level that. are we starting from? What level are we trying to reach? Absolutely, absolutely because there was, services were completely decimated and those community-based interventions and services on the ground, they're just not there. Um, and so part, so I've been enrolled at Revolving Doors for, um, for a year now and um, I had just come from working on sort of pandemic response and I was thinking one of the things that really struck me um, about having just stepped in, into the sector from um, from health and social care was thinking about how we could take a step back and think about how would we rethink and reset the system as a whole. Because yes, we continue to do the core work, which is about working to influence the system as it is and to almost a lot of the time it's sort of tinkering at the edges um, as well as trying to work on that sort of wholesale systems change but what if we were to actually just think okay if we could reset the entire system but think about what do we want from it in 20 years time what are we working towards when we just shed the the political timescales from our heads how would we reimagine it in that sense? And so over the next year, we're going to be doing work on this reset project. And it's going to be an opportunity to sort of take a slight step back. And it's it, the thinking around this has very much been informed by thinking about um, how as a, as a nation, we came out of the Second World War and how, same, our economy, Look at the state of the economy at that point, um, thinking about public morale at that point as well. And at the end of it, we came out with the beverage report. We came out of it with the creation of the welfare state. And that is absolutely extraordinary. And it makes me think, what happened to our ambition? Yeah, what Why? are we going to come out of this with? Absolutely. And what do we need yeah. to make sure we come out of this with? This is it. And so I think let's not fall into political traps if the government are not doing that long-term thinking, why don't we do it as a sector? And so I think this is going to be a, a good opportunity to, to do that and bring in lots of different voices. Um, at the heart of this will be people with lived experience. So interesting, because I was... Um what I was thinking about and often what I talk about in, in my work um, around one small thing and trauma and all the rest of it is when I'm talking about criminal justice, I say, well, imagine we're just taking the criminal aspect completely away because crime and laws and the ability for us to break laws, you know, laws are created by very intelligent people, but really people usually commit crimes. It's either around housing, low socioeconomic sort of situations that people find themselves in, um, health problems, but health is a health problem. Housing is a housing problem. So, you know, when that all goes wrong, there is a law and someone is told they've broken that law. So therefore they become a criminal and therefore they end up in prison and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But imagine if that, that didn't exist. 
you know, and then then you are then focusing back in on the areas because I do sometimes feel sorry for the criminal justice system because it's like then it becomes their budget problem and a capacity problem. But actually, if we turned it around and put more pressure on health, I know it's not a good time to be saying things like <laughs> let's put more pressure on health. But do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like turning the focus back into the areas of where the problems are starting. Absolutely. I think it's an interesting time to be having these conversations, um, particularly with the wider public as well. Because if you think about the situation we're in now and where we're heading, if we think about the cost of living rises, we think about how we're going to come out of um, how we're coming out of the pandemic. We think about the economic impact that's already happened and yet to come. There will be huge swathes of the population who would never have before considered themselves as being on the breadline or being impacted by poverty because that's for those groups of people over there who actually will be feeling the pinch and will be feeling the pressure. And that's, that's no different from the people who are currently trapped in these cycles. And so therefore, it's much easier to at that point to to slip into whether it's substance misuse, whether it's like I said, having a really uh, fragile housing situation. And so I hope that it will be an opportunity for us to have a bit more of a sensible debate about what we want to be as a society and who we want to be and how we want to treat those people who have less than us and whose life experiences are not maybe the same as ours. And so I think it speaks to, I mean, it probably speaks to probably much wider sort of philosophical issues as well. But then why can't we have those conversations? Absolutely. Why must we be constantly so reactive to every small thing that the government might be coming out with um, and thinking about, okay, well, how are we going to, to tackle this? Like even like something as wide as, what is justice? What what are people's perceptions and notions of the concept of justice? Um, I've always been really struck by how different countries approach these these issues. Why is it so much more uh, acceptable and palatable, say, to a, um, a, a population in a Scandinavian country to have a far more sort of humane penal system as opposed to the law and order type of debates and a narrative that we have here in the UK when a decision is made through a court of law and then there's constantly scrutiny over sentencing and and then calls for more reviews and it, it's a much more febrile atmosphere around these issues in this country um, and, I, and I wonder why that is and I think that there is I think, there's a, I think it would be good for us as a sector to take the opportunity to really delve deep into those issues, but bring in wider partners. Talk to people, former ministers who were at the helm before making decisions, what they now think they would have done differently. One of the things I always find really fascinating is um, talking to people in police, in probation, from social services, who have come to the end end of their careers and they're retiring because they have a lot to say. They have a lot to say. This is it. And, and actually, they can often say it. And so it's oh, brilliant. This I always is it. enjoy interviewing people when they're either at the end of their term or they've retired. Absolutely. Much more interesting. Absolutely. Because then they, they always, they'll always sort of start by sort of saying, you know, when I came into this job, this, you know, these were my ambitions and this is why I went into it. And lots of people who work across the system, it's very vocation led. But then the system grinds people down because of the way that it's it's currently operating. So wouldn't it be good actually to sort of document their experiences and then think about, okay, well, what would be the really big, bold policy solutions to this? And 
what if we were to present, a, say, a 20-year plan as opposed to just thinking, okay, well, what do we want to influence in this in this next, like, three or four-year cycle? Um, which, again, is necessary to the work that we're doing, and we continue to do that, but also taking taking a step back as well and think it like so almost setting the agenda ourselves as well um so when's that piece of work gonna start and when are you hoping to have concluded it or is oh it my open-ended so at the moment so project. we're so we're hoping to launch it in the next couple of months we've been talking to lots of partners we want to get lots of people involved um it will be you know I, I sort of see revolving doors as sort of convening this as a as a project, not the people sort of leading it. It's the whole point. It's got to be collaborative, and um, and we've been talking to our members about it and thinking about okay, how would our lived experience voices be be leading this type of project? What form will it take? So it's very much sort of in the early stages, um, but we want to sort of think about who do we need from the outset around the table. To be to be doing this this work, and we want to make sure that it's completely sort of like um, sort of cross like a cross party effort as well, making sure that we're engaging lots of different voices. Um, so it's not just all people singing from the same hymn sheet. Actually, we do want to hear a diversity of voices because that's also a part of the issue sometimes, yeah. where it's like actually echo yeah. chambers aren't very useful. No, no, <laughs> absolutely not, because they they have to be reflective of of the population as well. And so there will be some people who may fundamentally disagree with, say, Revolving Doors' viewpoint on certain things. Doesn't mean to say that we don't, we shouldn't hear what they've got to say. Um, and I think that a project like this is something that where we can actually bring those those different voices together. And then tell me about the work that you've been doing on the police crime sentencing and courts bill. It's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the, um, so we've been doing uh, quite a lot of work on that and we've been supporting others who have been um, also leading on, on that particular bill. Um, but one of the, one of the things that we've, um, we wanted to try and push through this bill was um, a presumption against short sentences because it's been a long standing campaign area for revolving doors. Um, and again, again, it's one of these things, it's a no-brainer. Um, short prison sentences don't work. Yeah, and, and the government even know that. And I say the government, no matter what colour, no matter what party. Yeah. But yet, I sort of keep thinking, maybe it's me that's sort of slightly lost it. Um, there must be a reason that they always say they know it's not efficient and it's not a good idea yet. Yeah. They keep doing it. This I just is, don't understand why. It creates so much churn and it costs us so much money. And yet... Clogs up the courts, clogs up the police custody suites. It's not effective. It wastes taxpayers' money. Yeah. Does not make victims any safer. Absolutely. Are there any plus points? No. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it, and it's, it is so short-sighted, again. And it's so... Unfixable. Yeah, you know, because on the absolutely. podcast, I'm always sort of keen to be like, you know, we sort of trudge over all these different problems. But, you know, what keeps me so buoyant is like, well, the solutions are sitting there and the solutions are totally able to be put into action. Absolutely. Yeah. So and and of course, and, and this is no sort of it's it's not an innovation in law in order to, to introduce a presumption. Scotland have had it for a decade a decade that they've had a presumption against short sentences. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not some sort of silver bullet solution to this. It, remember, it's just a presumption. But in order for a presumption to be effective, you need to invest 
into community sentences and community interventions. Oh, I need <laughs> so, to be a rub. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> but, but also we know that they have far better outcomes um, and they actually, you know, and a good, a well-designed uh, community sentence can actually get to the root causes and so to stop that churn, um, but I said, but they, but they need, needs investment. And I know that there are, um, there are problem solving courts up and down the country and there are pilots um, and there has been in some areas more investment put into community sentencing. Um, but then there's a piece of work in ensuring that uh, sentences, judges, uh, magistrates actually use them as options. Yeah, they don't always know what exists. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it, that does sometimes astound me. Um, mm. But yeah, don't know what exists or might not have confidence in them. Um, but you know, community like the, the drug treatment orders, the mental health treatment orders. I mean, we're doing a lot of work um, on uh, dual diagnosis because that also can be problematic. Where somebody could only so only get a mental health treatment order and then be uh, able to um treat the substance misuse problem which is i mean absolutely that doesn't work i mean these are not siloed isolated problems that people have it's all part of the whole it's about taking a person-centered approach to these things but we our sentences do need to become far more confident and willing to use community sentences as opposed to what is actually it's it's the short-sighted easy option is to is to use custodial sentences but then going back to sort of when the probation system was all but decimated um when it was privatized and we all remember it well and we all remember it being um knowing that it was going to be a catastrophic disaster um turns out it was the predicted catastrophic disaster. Like, you know, I think even my sort of seven-year-old could have worked that out. But anyway, we are where we are now. But I do feel sorry sometimes for magistrates because they do kind of go, well, what is, you know, there isn't anything out there. And a lot of magistrates I talk to say, of course, we don't want to send, particularly women who are more at risk in the community. They tend to need like safer, more secure services maybe yeah. because of um, domestic violence issues, um, you know, stalkers, uh, pimps, gang lords. Yeah. So magistrates will actually say she is safer going to prison. And that magistrate might actually be right, as opposed to sending a woman to maybe a, you know, um, an approved premises where there are men who are actually have just come out of prison on sexual offences, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so there will be those instances. And this is why... A really key element as part of all of this are the pre-sentence reports. Yeah. So earlier last year, a group of our members formed um, a probation team um, scrutinising the the regional reducing reoffending plans that the region, the new regional probation directors um, will be <clears throat> implementing. And one of the things that we were really clear on was about were, were the the need for and really a high quality up-to-date pre-sentence reports because it's at that point actually that the, the sentencer can make a more informed decision because it should be based on current up-to-date information. Just quickly explain to our listeners who might not be aware of what a pre-sentence report is and where it sits within the sort of criminal justice framework if you don't mind. So the pre-sentence report will be prepared by the probation officer um, and it will be, uh, it should be uh, a sort of quite a comprehensive account of of the individual, 
um, and of their needs, their track record, efforts that they've been making, um, and with recommendations for what could actually work for recommendations that to the magistrate. So a magistrate yes. can walk into work, they pick up their pre-sentence report on an individual who comes before them, and they can almost literally read off the sheet of paper. Yeah. And then make the best decision yeah. for that individual. And I mean, I personally believe that there should be a, a statutory requirement in terms of the the information and the level of quality because if you are able to deprive an individual of their liberty based upon this document, I feel that there should be some sort of gold standard in yeah, terms of... Yeah, you put it like that. Yeah. <laughs> because if it... Yeah, yeah, good idea. <laughs> if it hasn't been filled out properly, some, I mean, uh, some of our members have had experiences of the pre-sentence report being six months old, and in that time they've made lots of efforts and they've been been pots of lots of different schemes in order to try to, to reform and to recover and they're not taking into into account. Um, that it just, yeah, I find it extraordinary that, that there isn't more effort put, put into this. And, yeah. it, and it is something that I know that um, the probation service have, have, uh, have committed to doing more work on. Um, but it's just something that it's so much... There is so rides much power that's, that's, yeah, that rides on this And I one. guess also the probation officer, you, you know, if I was in that position where a probation officer is writing the pre-sentence report on me before I go before a magistrate for sentencing, you want that probation officer to be able to write well and to be able to put their case across on my behalf really well and you want them to care. Yeah. Um, that's all a bit dicey, isn't it? It is a bit dicey. <laughs> and so what I hear a lot from our members is... Um, so again, the, the, that relationship is so key and the probation officer holds an incredible amount of power because they obviously can recall an individual. And one of the, one of the things that we have long pushed for is for there to be um, a, a key worker, a link worker, um, who is somebody who has lived experience, who can sort of work alongside the person on probation and the probation officer. Um, but also when it comes to those decisions around uh, potential recall, that that is not left to the discretion of this one individual. Um, so over the last year, we've been um, we've been holding a probation inquiry, um, which should be published in the next month. And we've spoken to hundreds of people who are on probation as well as probation officers to talk about their experiences. And... Uh, and from the people who are on probation, that's the message that did come out loud and clear around that relationship. And because so we have members who in the course of one year can go through 16 different probation officers. I mean, how on earth are you supposed to form a, a meaningful relationship and really understand a person if there is so much chopping and changing. Well, exactly. And also there's a lot of pressure on that probation officer because um, I don't know what the levels are like now, but certainly at one time, and you'll have more up-to-date information, a probation officer could have, what, 70 people on their books? Yeah, yeah. you're nodding. I don't. Yeah, so I don't know what the caseloads are like at the minute, but is it sort of still around that mark? So it so it can be. That's a lot of pre-sentence reports to write. We are holding the National Probation Service, the new renationalized yeah. probation service. We're waiting with bated breath in terms of uh, of of seeing how they actually how this actually plays out. The ambition is there. Um, the the strategy is is the correct one. Um, there's clearly um, there's good intent um, to try to fix 
what has been a fiasco um, of uh, over the past few years. So as part of um, how they're looking at workforce, they're also looking at how they're reassessing uh, risk and thinking about workloads. And they are going to have to recruit lots of new people uh, into the probation services. They've committed to making sure that they can, that they employ people who have lived experience within the service and that lived experience voice is actually embedded throughout the, the probation service as well. So, I mean, our job is to hold them to account and to be constantly scrutinizing through our members who are experiencing the probation service in terms of how it's actually working. But the the reducing reoffending re plans that were published last year, again, they have they have uh, good ambitions. You know, you'll be pleased to, to know, uh, like us, that all of them um, spoke about how they were going to be trauma-informed as a service. What this actually means in reality and how this will play out. Yeah. It's a different thing. It's a different thing. But, you know, yeah. baby steps. <laughs> yeah, ba baby steps. And the fact that people are using the language is um, important and I think is a, is a beginning. There are mechanisms and frameworks in place. You know, you'll know that my organisation has been sort of spearheading this from a prison point of view for the last sort of six years. And what I always say to people is, look, you know, there is a way to work in a trauma-informed way. There is a way to make your institution a trauma-informed institution, but you have to do it. <laughs> you can't just use the words. And it is very, very obvious when people are just talking about it compared to the people who are doing it. Because I think people also forget there's to be trauma-informed is to have the knowledge. To be trauma-responsive is to be doing the work. Yeah. Um, you can't just talk about it you have to do it and it's I guess now getting people to the point isn't it where it's like you have to do it yeah absolutely <laughs> and you have to do it every day because actually it's also not a destination it's a cultural change yeah. in how you work it doesn't stop it's like having a good healthy diet yeah. you know it, it carries on yeah absolutely and I think <laughs> and there that is no end from our perspective because we work um our work is concentrated on before people would enter the prison estate and after they have uh, after they've left around resettlement but you know to be truly trauma informed um the revolving door group of people would never even touch the criminal justice system because the services would pick them up before they would have the interaction and so again everything goes back to having really good quality community interventions and diversions so that there is actually very little interaction with what we know is See, not a very trauma-informed uh, system. Yeah. At the at the moment, but you're right in that people are talking about it. That in itself is is progress. Right. Yeah, that's progress. And um, through the the program that we're doing with Changing Futures, um, it's coming to our attention that there are there are some really good pockets of good practice uh, across the country. And um, I think some of the work that we're doing, um, we're working in Plymouth, and I think Plymouth has the ambition to be the first trauma-informed city. Okay, because um, yeah. I think Lancashire wants to be the first trauma-informed county. Yeah, well, you <laughs> very competitive, which is what well, we like is, to this see. This is good for us, though. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we and what we want to do is make sure that we're capturing that good practice and then promoting it out wider. Um, you know, in many senses, and the agendas that we're that we're working on. There's only so much traction that you will get at the national level. Um, and so you have a programme of work, which is that national influencing. 
But where you can really affect change is on that local level. Absolutely. Just circling back um, for a moment to the short sentences, because that's then, of course, feeds into the... Um, the apparent increase in the prison population that we seem to be going down that yeah that very one way alley that, to disaster <laughs> <laughs> that very unfortunate um, expansion program which it sort of <laughs> lost lost for words <laughs> I think I'm lo- I'm lost for words just because if you think about the spend of that type of program do we know what the spend is. It's in the billions because it's yeah because it's it's part of a wider ten year ten year plan. Um, if you think that money, put that into the leveling up program, and think about investment into local services. Take the people on short sentences for those for whom it's appropriate to be in the community, of which there are many. Yeah, who pose no danger, who pose no risk to society. Take them out invest in the community service, you know. Yes, that, that's the really frustrating thing with this. And it's, you know, it's a big infrastructure spend. Um, and and I'm sure that there will be elements, because I mean, we know that um, our prison estate is it's horrific in many parts. Um, it hasn't been updated for a long time. So that's different. There's a big difference between if the intention was to improve the existing uh, prisoner's day as opposed to an expansion pro- program um, where your very clear intention is to yeah build them and and we'll fill them essentially because um, there's the other um, aspect of having to not just fill them with uh, prisoners but the People have to work in them. We already have a staffing crisis across our prison system. And the young people who are being recruited in, many of whom have no qualifications at all, who are hugely underpaid, are not being able to do the job well enough because, quite frankly, it's it's horrific. So they're leaving. Yeah. And then, of course, the older lot left when the frontline staff were cut by 40% back when the probation system was privatised. So where they think they're going to carry on getting these people who are up to the job, the important job of being a prison officer, for such low pay in a very dangerous environment. I mean, good luck to them. Yeah, absolutely. And this this speaks to wider sort of staffing crises across different sectors as well. Again, it's that sort of short-termism when it comes to thinking. They go, oh, well... Maybe this will get us a few more votes if we say that we're, you know, tough on crime. Makes and, a nice headline, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. But not thinking about the long-term consequences for those people who are going to be entering that estate. The, yeah, so there's the there's the the clear economic argument um, against expanding the prison estate. Um, there's the very clear moral argument when we, again, when we go back to thinking about the drivers of crime um, and money that should be pumped into interventions that should be put in place to tackle those. Um, and also, there's, I mean, the the issue that's um, that's really caught the particularly the the media attention was around the um, the 500 extra places for women. And I guess the reason that that has has been so controversial is because it goes against the government's own stated policy in their strategy that they published in 2018, which was to improve and increase community 
based interventions for women and to reduce the amount of women going into prison. And so, yeah. <laughs> so what do we do with that? <laughs> Scratch our heads a little bit more. And if you, you know, we think about, um, so the National Audit Office um, published last week uh, a report uh, looking into that female offender strategy and uh, and scrutinising it. And, I mean, it was such a damning report. And the government are are yet to sort of, to respond to that, but also are, are unable to provide a coherent argument or policy or position in response to this goes against your own stated aims as part of your strategy. We know that, so over half of the women in, uh, in prison are on short prison sentences. Um, again, we know what the drivers are. Mm, over 80% in for non-violent crimes. Yep. Yeah. I mean, is this really the best place for women? It absolutely isn't. Um, polling it's shows... certainly that, not good for their children. No, no. They get removed into the care system and then often don't recover, don't come out or end up in the Youth Offenders Institute yeah. and then feeding back into the adverse childhood experiences. And, yeah. so, and so it goes on. Yeah, and this is why I go back to that which I know can be, you know, it, it can, I don't know, sometimes it sort of makes you wonder, does it feel a bit too sort of navel-gazing, a bit too philosophical, but is this acceptable to us as a society? Is this the type of society that we want to live in where we know all of the evidence points to as soon as a child enters the care system, their life outcomes are horrendous? That should fill us all with shame and yet this is the current situation and it's it's not and it's it's no innovation it's not that it's all oh, this whole happened over the past five ten years no this is a long-standing issue and why is it beyond the wit of decision makers and policy makers and governments to actually deal with this and actually mm. tackle this issue i completely agree i sort of always say you know when people kind of go god how can you carry on working in this sort of world it's so sort of negative and i'm like well look you know we've managed to put a man on the moon we've got space travel you know these issues have been the same for a very long time you know they're going to carry on being the same for a very long time. Um, the solutions are out there. There's evidence out there. There's research out there. It's just a case of someone being brave enough somewhere to take a punt and start redesigning the systems. Because as you say, going back to your point about the Second World War and the beverage report and what's going to be our thing maybe coming out of this pandemic whenever we end up coming out of it, maybe it will be the fact that things are so broken at the minute and the court systems are so broken and so backlogged. Is this our rock bottom? Is this the point actually that we can turn around and say, look, this is no longer fit for purpose, I'm afraid, after COVID. We need to redesign new systems and we need to start doing it now. Absolutely. I sincerely hope that that's the point to which we're getting in terms of I mean, I don't know where the political will is going to come from yet. <laughs> I don't know who uh, our, who's, our, who's our modern day beverage. Next, what, who do you next think? question. <laughs> but there's certainly like we have far more power and, and traction as uh, as charities working in this sector, but also just as as individual citizens. You know, we have. I mean, 
maybe let's stay away from some, something like uh, social media, but we do have sort of people power. We can demand change. And changes have come about because the, the population, the people in a society have demanded that change happen. And so I think we're at a breaking point with lots of different sectors. I guess that, you know, health and social care is the, the big one that's um, that's dominating. But a lot of the issues that we cover and that we're talking about around multiple disadvantage, these are health and social care issues too. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, so why so why can't we then view them in the round as part of this these wider societal uh, challenges that we need to ta- tackle head on? And so it takes a lot of brave leadership. I completely understand that. Um, in order to do that. But actually, we have a a long history of brave leadership. And so, again, I I don't think it will take that much. I think it will take a few individuals um, to really sort of take up this mantle after we've started these conversations and we we start start the conversations, start the thinking, and then see what type of public appetite there is for tackling these issues as well. And because so many of them are so tied in with poverty, it really is in the interests of of the country as a whole to tackle these issues and to tackle them from the root causes. Absolutely. And it's better to die trying, I guess. Listen, we've covered a lot and my brain's beginning to hurt, but it's been absolutely amazing to sort of philosophically travel around with you and to talk about some of these issues and and the stuff that Revolving Doors is working on. So I will watch with interest as uh, as these projects sort of take shape. Um, Thank you so much. If anyone's listening and wants to hear more about Revolving Doors, then we will put notes um, at the bottom of the the footnotes in the podcast. Um, And Pavan, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. For one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 